0: Good morning. Nice to see everybody today. No? Okay, fair enough. So uh, two things. Give it up for Julian and Nicole having them host today. That's great. Do you know that the number one fear in the world is public speaking? Number two fear is dying. Isn't that crazy? It it is. Like, it's nuts. So uh, appreciate you guys and your courage. Thank you for doing that. It's always good to see normal people up here. Unlike myself, right? Just so you know that. But uh, hey, I'm um, just curious if anybody would like to change places with me today. I'm very happy to let somebody else come up and talk about uh, the topic today. Um, as we are in this series, keeping hope alive. Here's the, the the irony of this moment: is today I'm supposed to be talking about this. Hope demands generosity. Hope demands generosity, so that was the topic for today, and uh, there's a couple of reasons. We were going to talk about generosity kind of at a broad level uh, with all of who we are, and then in a couple weeks, we're going to spend uh, two weeks just kind of focus on what is courageous generosity when it comes to our finances, when it comes to money, which is everybody's favorite topic in church, right? Yeah, this is what I thought. You guys are with it. You're like, I came on a holiday weekend, and this is what I'm getting? Oh, my gosh, Right? So, so, uh, and so the the whole point of the talk today was to inspire you to a couple of things. Was to inspire you to go to the gala, all right? So you're just gonna have to take my word for it. Go to the gala, all right? I, I I can't. We just can't do it today. So go to the gala. It's going to be a great night. It's a beautiful fundraiser for beautiful organizations. Our guest that evening is a gentleman named Carlos Rodriguez. I met Carlos here in Colorado about four years ago. Had Carlos come out to a conference that I was a part of leading in New England. He cannot wait to be here. He's coming from Puerto Rico. You're coming from down the street, okay? Uh, It's it's going to be a great evening here, a lot of fun, uh, great stuff to bid on, great cause. And just so you get an idea of who Carlos is. Um, we pulled a little, uh, a little audio bite from his TikTok account, okay, uh, and the Happy Giver. So it's, it's pretty short. So I just want you to just take a second. And listen, this is Carlos. He's going to be with us in just a couple of weeks. So turn your attention here to the screen. Christianity wasted way too much time trying to tell the world how to follow Jesus when it was actually Jesus telling his followers how to love the world, how to serve the world, how to welcome everybody. We've got to flip those tables. All right, so you've got to come. I'm telling you, you're going to enjoy Carlos. He's going to be with us the whole weekend. It's going to be a lot of fun, all right? So that's the gala. Get your ticket out. I think there's a table set. I no, there's a table set up in the atrium. You can also go online, check the box. The other thing that I was supposed to do in this promotion of generosity is to encourage you to realize that summertime is always a difficult time for your church financially because everybody's traveling and going around. So, if you would please be generous and give this summer when you're gone, be a part of what's going on. We've got camps going for a brand new thing we're doing. These things are all require investment. We always say like we're not a part of some. There's no mothership. There's no mothership that just beams down funding. We fund this mission ourselves. And so I want to encourage you to be generous this summer uh, and, and go for it and give and watch what God does through our church in the lives of kids and families all over. So today, we're going to give generously on Memorial Day. That's what you get for coming to church. Okay, so listen, the irony of it is that's what's supposed to happen today. So we're supposed to like walk out excited about giving, excited about our church. But what's going to (laughs) happen is quite possibly the exact opposite. Like you're going to listen to something today and get upset and go, oh, I'm not giving. Because we're going to talk about an issue that I have no intention of being political on. None whatsoever. I want you to hear me right now. Everybody say, not political. Say it out loud. So what's going to happen is some of you are going to get mad at me and say that I'm too political, and some of you are going to get mad and say I'm not political enough. That's what's going to happen. It just is what it is, right? I'm not here to tell you today. I don't want to do... I'm not here to tell you how to vote. I'm not here to tell you what to think about gun control. Everybody just take a breath. You thought you were going to have to listen to somebody talk to you about what you should think about. I'm not going to... That's not my point at all, okay? I, I don't want... To sound like Fox News. I don't want to sound like CNN. I don't want to sound like a person who supports the Democratic Party. I don't want to sound like a person who supports the Republican Party. I want to sound and look like Jesus. That's my heart, okay? So, so everybody just take a deep breath. I'm not, we, we have no register to vote work, all right? It's not, we're not trying to get you to change your political party, none of that, okay? And honestly, can I just have a real moment with you? We're gonna have a lot of real moments over the next 25 minutes, I'm gonna tell you that right now, okay, but here's the real moment. Like, sometimes I feel like uh, that moment in Jesus's ministry where he gives a hard word to the crowd and they all leave. And then he looks at his disciples and he says, are are you gonna leave too? And his disciples say what? They say no. They say to Jesus, where would we go? You have the word that brings life. And I hope, that's my prayer, is that somehow today we can experience that word that brings life, right? That we can somehow sense the spirit of Jesus calling us into a very difficult but important conversation and that we ought to look at this reality of gun violence in our world as followers of Jesus. And, and what does that mean to be a peacemaker? And how, do, how can we Talk about, engage with, look for solutions that can really tackle and understand the evil that we are experiencing. Okay? Um, so, this is a moment that I like to call like, this is a look at the snake on the pole moment. <laughs> so, how many of you are familiar? Just raise your hand up if you're a total Bible geek like me, uh, and you're familiar with the story in the Bible, where, and it's in the Old Testament where the Israelites are all bitten by these poisonous snakes and Moses puts a snake on a pole, and he raises it up, and when they look at the snake, they're healed. Do you remember that? Does anybody remember that? Some of you Bible geeks, I appreciate that. Um, And then Jesus actually makes reference to that in his ministry, and he talks about him being lifted up for all to see, and then healing coming. And what I think that story is about is not that God sends snakes to bite people. I don't think that's at all. But I think it's to say that if we don't stare directly at what's destroying us, what's killing us, the venom that we are that's coursing through us, we can never find healing. Like we have to actually just examine the hard truth, the harsh reality. And so that's what that means to gaze upon the cross is to look at the violent death of God. <laughs> to gaze upon the snake on the pole is to look at the venom, the, the disease, the pain, the hurt and to, to honor that reality, right? And so that's what we're gonna do a little bit of today. So this last Tuesday, uh, you know in Texas uh, there was something that we don't even have a word for that that happened, this tragic shooting, this killing, this massacre of 19 children and two school teachers. And we have to look at that snake on that pole, that, that venom. This was the 214th mass shooting in our nation this year already. 214. This is the 22nd school shooting this year. In our community here in Colorado, in Northern Colorado, we know this just last year on March 22nd at King Supers in Boulder. We had a mass shooting that killed 10 people and injured two. This is the reality of the country we live in. This is the reality of the space that we're occupying right now. This is happening. And, And now when that happens, all of a sudden, the polarization, the disconnect, the anger spills over towards one another. There's passion, there's, there's arguing, there's all of that. And the question does beg, and we have to ask the question, what can we do about this? What should we do about this as citizens? But I want to ask the question is, what do we do about this as citizens of heaven? Right? And I don't mean heaven in this like, other world experience. I mean heaven as in that first song that we talked about to see the Jesus way, to see a world of wonder, to believe what could be is better than what is, to believe that the the Spirit and the kingdom are at work right now, and we're trying to live in that presently. And so what I wanted to do today was, again, I I don't feel it's my place to tell anybody what to believe or not really even how to behave, right? I, I believe deeply in this principle scripture calls the priesthood of all believers, that means that every one of us has the responsibility to understand who we are in Christ and to live out our faith in the way that we see best appropriate, and that God's grace covers all of that, that we don't have to be right. We don't have to have perfect theology, but when our hearts are turned towards this living spirit of Christ in, in us and into our world, something powerful happens. So I want to honor the priesthood of all believers, but I want to maybe share with you um, some questions that are worth asking, all right? So what I'm gonna do today is I'm gonna share with you seven questions because you know seven's the perfect number, we know that, and as a pastor, I've gotta do things in sevens or threes, you know, I don't know. We might only get through three of these to be real honest with you, but um, I'm gonna give you seven questions that I think are important that I'm trying to leverage as I engage in a Christ-like way in seeing an end to gun violence and mass shootings. So these are seven questions that I'm asking myself So this is kind of like one of those Paul moments, follow me as I follow Christ or don't, okay? This is just, this is the only place I know to come from because I'm not an expert on public policy. I'm not an expert on gun violence. I'm just trying to figure this out as a follower of Jesus. How do I engage in this in a way that doesn't create more victims, in a way that doesn't push me away from people that all are trying to accomplish the same task, right? So here's the first question that I wrestle with, and I think it's a good question for you, a good question for all of us, and that is, why is humanity, and particularly many forms of Christianity, okay with violence? Why is it that we seem, as a culture, as a society, as humanity, like, and even within Christianity, it's like we're okay with violence. Violence doesn't seem to bother us. We're following the way of a person who refused to act violently, who led a a nonviolent revolution against oppression, refused to participate in violence. Violence is the actual, you know, marring, killing is the ending of the image of God on this earth of someone, and yet we're kind of okay with it. I'm okay with it, okay? So, like, I'm not, trust me, I'm not judging you. But, but our culture, our lives, our television, our movies, like we come to this space where we kind of celebrate when the good guys win and the bad guys die or the good people win and the bad people die. Probably, I, don't, I, don't, I haven't seen the movie yet. I'll probably see it. Um, the, the, Dennis and I were talking about this, the, um, the new Top Gun movie that's out, right? I, I'm assuming in, in this Top Gun movie that, that they're blowing other humans out of the sky, and, and we're going to go and, like, cheer because it's hopefully our team that's winning. <laughs> and, and what's interesting is violence really comes to a spo- space where it, like, starts to gnaw at us because I think we would all agree with this, and I'm actually going to ask you to raise your hand. Would you agree with me, right, we, we, you know, you might not agree with me that we're okay with violence or whatever it might be, but we would all agree with this statement that killing children is abhorrent. Would you raise your hand and say that? The killing children is a poor. There is no reason ever that we could ever justify that, okay? So when we see it, violence in such a raw form, right, towards a space, then we go, there's something not right here. So let me just read this passage of scripture to you, given what we just said. Exodus chapter 12. And so at midnight, the Lord struck down every firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh sitting on his throne to the firstborn of the prisoner in the dungeon, as well as all the firstborn of the animals. And Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was loud wailing throughout Egypt, for there was not a house without its dead. So if we all can agree that killing children is abhorrent, why do we still hold that this has to be a picture of God in so much of Christianity? when in antiquity, pre-enlightenment, in an ancient world, the interpretation of the world, the origin story of a nation involves a God killing all the firstborn children. I think these are things we have to wrestle with as Christians, and we have to say, okay, something's not right here. Something's not right here. And if we aren't willing to wrestle with the violent realities that we experience in our scriptures, and almost see through the lens of Jesus, a denouncement and say, no, that's not God, that's human projection onto God. I think that's behind our being okay with violence because somewhere along the way in our Christian faith, we started celebrating when other faiths died. And in our history, we celebrated when we eliminated other faiths, when we eliminated people because this was the God that we were maybe handed. But now when you think about the Exodus story of children and then you look at Jesus, we see a stark difference. In Luke 18, how does Jesus respond to children? It says that people were bringing even their infants to him, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. Get the kids out of here. Jesus doesn't have time for the kids. No, but Jesus called the children to himself and said, let the little children come to me and do not prevent them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Amen, I say to you, whoever does not accept the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it. See, one of these gives us the radical image of God, the radical idea of God, the inclusion of children, the love of children. And one of these verses gives us a projection of the normalcy of a violent world and our understanding of the world onto God. And until we're willing to step out into the very dangerous, what feels like dangerous waters and question some of our presuppositions around the ways in which God are described in our scriptures... I think that's going to continue to lead us down a road where we're just like okay with violence. But we all said killing children is abhorrent. And so, in some way, we have to wrestle with this. And I think, as a people that are in our Christianity, we have to say, hold on, like our God in Christ is not violent. And so, when we see that violence, we don't just say, oh, well, it's God, God knows best. We have to say it's something else. Because there's, there's an inconsistency in all of that, and I have to ask myself this question all the time. Which, which image is my faith grounded in? Which God is my faith grounded in? Is it in the God that Jesus reveals, or is it in the God that is reflective of a violent reality in our world? And that's tricky and challenging, but I think it's an important question. And I, I just, I'm always asking myself, why is violence okay? Why would I, when my children were getting older and watching movies, why did I say things like, well, it's just that rated or it's just for that age because of violence and not sex, so it's okay. Like why did Christianity lose its mind about sexuality but be perfectly okay with violence? Sexuality, the thing that actually brings us together as human beings, that can be like the most beautiful act of intimacy is wonderful, and yet Western Christianity lost its mind, but we were perfectly fine with violence. It's a question we have to wrestle with. There's no answer, it's just worth asking. Second question that I'm wrestling with is, how did Jesus respond to the violence of his day? If I'm following Jesus and I'm inviting you know, people to follow Jesus and I'm attempting to lead a community of people following Jesus, I have to ask, okay, how did Jesus respond to the violence? And I thought about this moment in Jesus' life where he's kind of headed towards uh, his, his passion his suffering. And he, he looks over the city, Jerusalem. Now, remember, Jerusalem would have represented, in the mind of a Jewish person, like the very center of God's activity in the world. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. Look at what Jesus says. How many times I yearned to gather your children as a hen gathers her young under her wings, but you were unwilling. Like Jesus' response to violence, right? His response to violence was, I just want to gather you in. I just want to love you. I want to shelter you because whatever is producing that violence, whatever is, is causing that motivation, I think Jesus believed that there was this space for healing. And then he also said, you know, at his arrest, according to Matthew, Jesus says to a disciple, put your sword back in its sheath, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. It seems to me that Jesus understood that the law of sowing and reaping applied to violence as well, that if we sow in violence, we'll reap in violence. And so when when there's a sowing of violence in Jerusalem, a killing of the prophets, this idea that there's a rejection, Jesus knows if he comes with violence, if he comes with oppression, if he comes with the sword, it's just going to perpetuate it. It's just gonna perpetuate it. So I'm always asking, how, how would the spirit of Jesus respond to the violence now? Like, what is that response that Jesus would have? How would I picture and imagine Jesus in, in our clothing, in our dress, walking around in our time? Like, how does that how does that spirit of Christ, that mind of Christ, cause me to imagine? I think it's a good question. And I think part of the problem as well is we see the normalcy of violence appear back in Revelation, and so there's something inside of us that just, oh, well, expects Jesus is going to come back and he's going to, like, bloody everybody up. And I can tell you right now, I don't read Revelation that way. I think it's a a two-step backward. I think there's a lot of history that John is leveraging in the book of Revelation. I don't believe we have a schizophrenic Christ who says, you know, my grace is enough, who comes in nonviolence, who one day is just going to be like, "Well, that's enough. That's enough. I'm just going to wipe out everybody. I just don't believe that. So what is it? There's a complexity there, but I'm, I'm asking that question. Third question, who's playing the scapegoat in my thinking? Now, this is a little tricky uh, of a question, but who's playing the scapegoat in my thinking? So scapegoating is when we assume or we put on to a group of people all the guilt, all the blame, and we say, if I just get rid of them, everything will be fine. It's a principle that we have. We call it scapegoating, right? And scapegoating is the product of the lie of purity culture. Now, when I say purity culture, don't say, if you grew up in church world, that's not like the purity ring, the abstinence until you get married. That's not what I'm talking about, okay? It's a whole other message, all right? But purity culture is this idea that, that we're working towards a society where everybody will be the same, and we'll be pure. Like, we'll all be the same religion, we'll all look the same, we'll all dress the same, we'll all believe the same, and, and it's kind of a lie. <laughs> and purity culture is like founded, in it. and it's this idea that somehow we can get back to the garden. You know, the story of the garden, maybe you're familiar with the story of Adam and Eve and the snake that talks. And then the story of the garden like helps us understand the power of and why we think we, we scapegoat, Right? Because inside of us, there's this desire to know who's good and to know who's bad. So, in Genesis, we have this story that's not about the foundation or the creation of the world. This is about why we exist the way we do. And this is what it says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. It says, now the snake was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He asked the woman, did God really say you shall not eat from any of the trees in the garden? And the woman answered the snake. So, it's kind of a funny thing. You know, we're talking to snakes here, right? I'm... I don't care if people believe this is literally true or not. It doesn't bother me one bit. If you believe literally that a snake was talking, that's fine. I, I probably at one point in my life believed it. I don't hold that now. I don't think it's important. I think we come to the question of what does it mean? And I think it means the same thing, whether you take it literally or whether you take it metaphorically, okay? My brain just can't get past snakes don't talk. That's just where I am. You have more faith than I do. Totally fine with that, okay? But if you're like me and you hear this and you think I'm out, because snakes don't talk. You don't have to be out because snakes don't talk. I mean, I'm in it, okay? All right, so here it says, no, she answers that we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. It's only about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden that God said you shall not eat it or even touch it or else you will die. But the snake said to the woman, come on, you're certainly not going to die. God knows well that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like gods who know good and evil. And then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eyes and the tree was desirable for gaining wisdom. So she took its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. So here's the thing, right? The, the story, the point of the story is there's this moment in our lives where we think that we can discern who's right and who's wrong and who's good and who's bad. And there's a point in our lives where we realize that just leaves us totally exposed. And here's what we do. We eat from this tree all the time, all the time. And when we eat from the tree and we decide that we can decide who's in, who's out, who's got the right idea for gun control, who's got the wrong idea, when we decide who's bad and who's evil and we get into it and we discern and we think that's our role and that's our world, all that does is just leads to more violence. The story continues on. What's the the next story? If you're familiar with it, right? The expulsion from the garden. It's like, it's it's a necessary. It's the statement of where we are. Like the garden is not accessible. <laughs> the, the, it, it, it's a myth. It's a lie in the sense. And I know I, I just offended some of you, I didn't mean to do that. Like the idea of the garden is a lie. There's always going to be a fracturing. There's always gonna be this differential, and we have to learn how to live in that. I mean, the image in Revelation that's so beautiful is every nation, tribe, and tongue gathering around the throne, but every nation, tribe, and tongue is distinctive, right? We're not all the same. But when we decide, oh, you're out, you're out, you're out, it just leads to death and violence, because what happens next? We have the first case of murder, and then we have it expanding more and more and more. So I'm always asking myself, who does my heart want to say, oh, it's their fault? They're to blame. It's those people that believe this about gun control. It's those people that believe this about assault rifles. It's those people that do this. It's those people that do that. It's those people that, it's those people that don't believe mental health care should be. It's those people that, like, who am I scapegoating? Because what I, that does is it, it just creates a lie that somehow I'm not a part of the problem. <laughs> that goes back to, why am I just okay with violence? And then all of a sudden, when violence comes at such an abhorrent level, then I take note, right? But scapegoating just absolves me of any responsibility that I have. And so, that's a question I'm always asking, because I always have a tendency to do it. I'm always, I'm eating that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm "I'm eating it up. When I spent my whole life studying good and evil, come on, I have a master's degree in the knowledge of good and evil from a pretty prestigious school, for goodness sake. If there's anybody qualified, but it just produces more pain. It produces more polarization, just finger pointing. That's why we can't get anything done. Fourth question, who or what do I see as the enemy in this fight? Okay, so there's the principle, and this is related, because here's the thing. I, I want to make somebody the bad guy. <laughs> I want to make somebody the enemy, but there's something about my faith in Jesus that says, Be careful. Be careful. Because there's victimization everywhere. There's wounds everywhere. Be careful. Ephesians says, finally, draw your strength from the Lord and from his mighty power. Put on the arm of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the tactics of the devil. For our strength is not with flesh and blood, our struggle, excuse me, is not with flesh and blood, but with principalities, with the powers and with the world rulers of the present darkness, with the evil spirits in the heavens. Now, again, there's a wide spectrum of way in which very loving, faithful followers of Jesus read this, right? So some will read this in a way that says there are literal unseen demons, a devil, and that's who we're battling with. I have no problems if that's the way you read that. Some people read it, that this is a pre-enlightenment text trying to make sense of this reality that there are things under the surface that are the real issues like greed and poverty. See, these are the demons that I see us fighting, right? My battle isn't with the person who is the product of abuse, the product of anger, the product of hatred, my enemy is not the person who has been neglected. My enemy is not the person who has been wounded and so is now wounding. My enemy, as a follower of Jesus, is that principle, that principality behind all of that, the poverty, the, the lack of care, love, the whatever it might be. So that's the driving force. And then we're given this, like, armor of God kind of thing to hold fast to, right? Because there is this sense that we're in a battle, right? But it's not one of violence, so question number five. got to go through these quicker. Question number five. As a follower of Jesus, what should my response be to killing or death of any sort? I'm always asking myself that question. What should my response be? And when I mean response, I mean like how should I think about it? Should I celebrate? Should I grieve? Should I be excited? Should I go get them? What should it be? Ecclesiastes chapter three, very famous piece of poetry. Whether you're a Bible person or not, you've probably heard this. It says there's an appointed time for everything and a time for every affair under the heavens. Meaning this is gonna happen, it just is, this is what is. There's a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot the plant, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. The question I ask myself, is as a follower of Jesus, do I weep and mourn when killing and tearing down takes place, or do I laugh and dance? Do I watch war and say, go get them, and do I cheer, and do I say yes, or do I maybe acknowledge the complexity of war and maybe even concede the inevitability of war but do I just mourn that it happens? The only response to me from a Christ like perspective for my heart and my life is mourning. But too oftentimes I see people celebrating. And that, I don't, I don't, I, I'm at this space where like I get it, but if I'm following Jesus, who would say, I died for the whole world, <laughs> every person, there's something to me very anti Christ about celebrating the death of anyone, whether it be an enemy or whether it be a child. I mean, we follow a person who said, love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you. And yet it's not uncommon to read or hear justification of war from everywhere without any regard for the loss of human life, right? And that pain, whatever that violence might be. So I ask myself the question, how do I respond? And I'm trying to be a person who weeps and mourns at any loss of life, at any death. That, that's what I feel like is that's the, those two times go together. Where we get all wonky is when it's a time to kill and I think it's a time to rejoice. Or there's a time to die and I think it's a time to rejoice. No, these things have to go together. There's, it's the same time. Those things have to be consistent, right? And, and I can't bypass that mourning, that grieving, so question number six, if you're keeping score, do my priorities reflect the reign of God in this world? So do my priorities as I engage in understanding policies, laws, whatever whatever it might be, do my priorities reflect the reign of God in this world or do they reflect something else? Jesus said in Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and feasting all these things will be given to you besides that. Like make your priority the kingdom of heaven. And so I think about this in these three domes. If you all ever heard you've seen me talk about the three domes. I can't go into it deep but I just give you a, a little reminder of this, right? We have three domes of existence. The first one down here is my story. Right? This is all the stuff that you need to create an ego. Ego's not bad, it's your identity, right? It's your name, whew, I'm gonna get high on that marker, Woo. thank you very much, Jesus, for that one. Okay, um, <laughs> I was like, what does that smell? Um, this is like my story, it's, it's just, it's who I am, it's the things that I enjoy, it's my internal, it's my ego, right? It's important, you gotta have it. It's just only gonna take you so far, right? As you grow and get older, you, you realize you live a lot of our time, we live a lot of our time in this second dome of meaning, our story. And our story are the, small, are the groups that we're a part of. And they're not bad. Again, none of these are bad. Don't, don't hear that, okay? Don't hear that. They're not bad. So, our story, some of us in the room uh, uh, would say, oh, I am, I'm, I am Caucasian. Some would say, I'm Hispanic. Some would say, I'm a different nationality. That's a group, right? like our nationality would be one group, uh, our faith. Some of you in the room would say, I'm a follower of Jesus, or I'm a Christian, whatever words you like to use. That's another group. Some people in this world would say, I'm a Muslim, right? Some people would say, I'm an American. Some people would say, I'm an American Christian. I'm an American Muslim, right? I, I'm, I'm an immigrant, right? These are all of our groups, and they're powerful, and they're good. There's nothing wrong with them. And, and they, they leverage our story, right, to create a sense of community, right? But then there's this big dome of meaning, right? And this big dome is what I think Jesus calls the kingdom of God, what we might today call the rule of God, the reign of God, to get rid of the the kingdom mentality, right? And this is the story, (laughs) right? And healthy communities, like healthy religion, my opinion, again, this is my opinion, like healthy Christianity is pulling me into the story, And in the story, there's just us, right? There's just us. There's the reality of it, right? And so I'm trying to, when I think about gun violence in America, I recognize that I have to bring into account that I'm an American citizen, that I live under the Constitution of the United States, I get that. But a more important like framework for me is this. It's like, am I thinking about and understanding what's going on and the potential policies that could go into place? Am I thinking that about policies that are good for the story? <laughs> good for the big story of peace on earth. Good for the big story of wholeness of all people regardless of their faith, their gender, their sexuality, whatever it might be. Am I thinking in those terms? Because here's the danger that I think we have as followers of Jesus, and this is again where, where attendance and giving goes down, okay? If, I'm, if I allow my citizenship in this world to be the first priority in how I think this world should be shaped, I'm missing it. And I'm really not living in my faith. So I'm trying to live under the spirit of God, which I think is this big story, the story of redemption of all humanity, of, of making all things right through partnership with, with us. So which dome am I thinking in? We get stuck in the, our story I get it, we think like Americans, we think like Christians, we think like hunters, we think like gun owners, we think like activists, we think like pacifists, we think, we, we think in those categories, and that's okay, it's, it should be part of, the, part of the thought process, but it can't be the thought process, I don't think. So I'm always trying to ask myself, which one am I thinking about, which where am I stuck in? So, so life in the story, life in the spirit, has to subjugate all these other little stories, right, for me. And and so I'm trying to think about that as I engage and listen and learn about options. And here's what the story says to me. Isaiah chapter 2 gives us a great image of what the story is pointing to. It says, in days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest mountain and raised above the hills, and all nations shall stream toward it. Again, don't read this literally. Think about what it's saying, right? There's a big story There's a big story under a God that is love, and and one day all the nations will run towards that, they'll stream towards it, and many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the Lord's mountain, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may instruct us in his ways, and we may walk in his paths. Far from Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. This is what it says, he shall judge between the nations and set terms for many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. One nation shall not raise the sword against another, nor shall they train for war again. House of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. You see, that vision of the story is what I'm thinking through and I think is a good framework to say, okay, are my policies, are the way I'm thinking about this, what we could do as a a community, as a nation, is it pointing me and moving me to the story? Or is it keeping me in one of these smaller stories? Final question, final jeopardy. Am I allowing the voice of the victims to inform and transform my heart? See, I think we live in a world where it's really easy for me to tune on the news and read the reports and get all of the stuff. But the most important voice, I think, for me in understanding and shaping how my life should look and how I should think about this is the voice of the victims, the survivors. I just think I for me I just think their voice is the most important one and and I'm asking myself how is their voice transforming my heart changing my mind shaping me Jesus said this Jesus said come to me all who labor and are burdened and I will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am meek and humble of heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light See I think that's Jesus saying to the victims of our world, come, whether you're a victim of religious oppression, gun violence, Jesus says, come to me and find rest. And I think that Jesus would say, like, how do you feel? What went wrong in your opinion? What could have been done to avoid this in your opinion? No matter what it is, I think Jesus was a victim's advocate. And the cross is a constant reminder that God is present in the victim. (laughs) The very very foundation of following Jesus is that we follow a God that died naked on a cross with criminals, the victim. That was the blood that overcame. And so, what I've learned is if I want to figure out where God is at work transforming and shaping our world… I try to go to the victim's voice because it is the greatest victim's voice that has shaped the history of the world, Jesus. So as we kind of wrap up, what is it that God's inviting you into today? Our next steps, as you'll see on the connect card, have nothing to do with the talk <laughs> because we changed the talk last minute. This is not a super like well thought out four point message. None of mine are actually the ones I think that aren't, so it's okay, I suppose. but. So what is it that God's inviting you into today? For me, can I tell you what God's inviting me into today? And again, this is me. This is, you don't have to, (laughs) please, you don't have to listen to this. You just, well, I guess you have to listen to it, but you don't have to follow it or whatever. The Spirit of God invites me to say that the goodness of God is not found in the Zeus-like theism where God is in charge of the whole world and everything in it and is all powerful and can stop these tragedies but doesn't because it's all part of a plan. That God died on the cross for me. Like, that God is dead. And what has been resurrected is something far more beautiful but different. So, so I feel the divine, I feel love inviting me to recognize that this is not part of a divine plan, these types of horrendous things. This is evil and brokenness and woundedness in its humanity. This is sin. And that I'm invited to see the goodness of God, the divine, as not a God that somehow could have stopped this, and that's what makes God worthy of my attention. That's what makes Jesus worthy of my following. No, but I see the goodness of God as Emmanuel, God with us, despite our undeserving nature of that goodness being with us. God stays, and God is present, comforting the brokenhearted, wanting to gather us up. And that's what I'm being invited to, and I don't believe in the, I understand the language, you know, God spared my child. I don't believe that, though. I'm invited to not see God as one who spares one child and, and doesn't spare another child. I, I don't see that as God. And I'm being invited to say, that's okay. And I'm being invited to recognize I can still say that God is good in the midst of terrible evil in this world. And I can say there is no ultimate purpose in this type of evil. There is no ultimate, there doesn't have to be an ultimate purpose. This is a tragedy, it's evil. But love conquers all. That's what I'm being invited into to see that love conquers all. And the goodness of God is this unbelievable ability to provide people in our lives that can comfort and can somehow heal and bind up broken hearts and journey for the rest of our lives with that pain and somehow redeem it. And that is complex and that is nuanced and that is very different than God has a plan. I just think God is way bigger than a plan. (laughs) I think God is far more persistent than a plan. So... We're going to, against all odds, sing this song, God, You Are So Good. And this song says, I'm blessed, I'm favored. It gives this like litany. And I think it's a good song to sing. I'm not sure, but I think it's a good song to sing if we recognize that that blessing, that goodness of God is for us to give away is for us to go and participate in the hard, difficult spaces in our world. And so I can own and I can believe that I am chosen by God as everybody is, and I've just had the privilege of seeing it, and I'm, I'm blessed and I'm favored and anointed, but it's to go. It's to be the one who now says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. The danger in this song is that we gloss over the shittiness of what just happened, and we can't do that. That's not fair. So we sing this in, as a, I think, a statement of hope and faith, but a calling for us to be hope and faith for those that have lost it in a space of non-judgmental care that says, "I get it." Losing faith in a moment like this is a perfectly reasonable response. And we love and we care regardless. So just close your eyes, take a few moments, and then I have a special prayer for us from a poet, a prayer for a time of violence that we'll say or I'll say on behalf of our community. And then we'll go and allow Memorial Day to find a new meaning in our lives given everything that's happened and is happening. Thank you, God, for this moment that we have. And this really is awful. And uh, help us to be okay with the cries that are straight from the Psalms. Of, Where are you? Why have you abandoned? Help us to be a space of hope, God. But we have to have that grace for one another as we talk about these kinds of really, what can become very polarizing and divisive moments. So thank you for that. Would you stand with me if you're able as we kind of close in this prayer? This is a prayer written by a poet named Padraig Otwama. And I believe he's an Irish poet. And his writings are beautiful. You should read everything he has written, whether it be his poetry or some other things that he's written. Um, But this is called a prayer in times of violence. Would you just close your eyes and allow this to be our prayer? God of all humanity, in times of violence, we see how inhuman we can be. And we pray for those who today are weighed down by grief. And we pray for those who yesterday were weighed down by grief, and the day before, and all the days before the day before. We pray, too, for those who help us turn towards justice and peace. Turn us all towards justice and peace because we need it. Amen. Amen. Have a good rest of the weekend, everybody. We'll see you next week.